And paso we passe a passad paso long to Jen Pasaki, the Pasilli Pasocialist spokeswoman for whichever behind the Pasines surrogate is secretly running this stupid presidency. We're Pasari to Pasir Pasign off. Pasister Pasaki stepped down this week after 16 months of Pasimulation, Pasubterfuge, and Paslander, handing the press Pasecretary Paspot over to Corrine Jean-Pierre, a black gay immigrant and also a complete twit. But say what you will about Pasaki, she wasn't a Pasap and could Pascam and Pasnow the White House core of lackeys and lick Paspitals with a certain amount of Pastyle. It's only Pasuitable that Pashi Pashud now Pasign up with MPSNBC, since their Pashows are as Pasimplistic and Pasinister as a Paslippery Press Pasecretary on Paspeed. To Paspeak Pasincerely for a Pasecond, I've always felt sorry for presidential spokesmen and spokeswomen. They're in the severely strenuous situation of saying a new lie in almost every single sentence. Jen Psaki, for instance, often had to spell out why abortion was such a swell idea, because if you slaughter your sons and daughters, you don't have to find baby formula to feed them, and have thereby solved the supply situation that Joe Biden can't solve because his brain is turned to slush. Pasaki also had to say such silly stuff as we will solve inflation by taxing corporations who will then pass that tax on to the customer by raising prices, thus making inflation worse, which will solve inflation with so much more inflation, which, let's simply say it, doesn't make any sense. It's hard to see how Corrine Jean-Pierre is going to sell such silliness when she's a black gay immigrant who is also a complete twit. Another stupid thing Jen Psaki had to say was that the Biden administration was going to replace fossil fuels with sustainable energy, like the solar power. That's super until there's a storm, then you're screwed. God created dinosaurs, so we have an oil supply for centuries. And these Democrat saps want to strangle that supply and replace it with pinwheels from the state fair. What a sack of schmucks. But seeing that the Biden energy policy has strengthened Putin, making oil slaves of Europe while sinking the economy here in the UPS, it clearly takes the titanic mendacity of a Jen Psaki to sell such stuff. But surely, this garbage will all fall flat from the mouth of black gay immigrant Corinne Jean-Pierre because she's also a complete twit. So, when we say we're sorry to see Psaki ship off, we mean we'll miss being lied to by someone smart enough to almost sound like she means the Pasilipa stuff she possesses. Pasaki did leave a note behind for her successor, saying, quote, Dear Corrine Jean-Pierre, when you stand before the Lickpaspitals and other Pasundry Pasnakes, Paskunks, and Pascoundrels who make up our Pasad excuse for a press corps, never forget that while you got this job because you're a black gay immigrant, you are also a complete twit. Paso. When you say the sensationally stupid stuff a secretary has to say, try at least to seem as if you're sincere instead of just a simpleton. To be sure, the press will protect you by endlessly saying how historic it is that you are a black gay immigrant. But it is even more historic that you are such a complete twit. So watch your step. Love and kisses, Jen Psaki, unquote. Psaki then added, P.S., that's it, just P.S. 
I'll pause for a moment to let you get that joke, then simply say, trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo, birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo, ship-shaped ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing it's a wonderful day, hoorah, hooray, it makes me want to sing, oh, hoorah, hooray. All right, we are back once again, laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. We will be talking today about the fat, ugly girl on the cover of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. Uh, We'll talk about the absolutely despicable reaction of the left to the Buffalo shooting. And cultural reporter Megan Basham has a really interesting story about a new insidious leftist attack on American Christianity. Uh, This is my last chance to remind you to get tickets for The Uncanny. It's having its world premiere uh, on the stage in uh, Dublin, Ohio, but you can also get uh, tickets to watch it online. Uh, live, live streaming. It is uh, at stagerighttheatrics.ticketspace.com and then look up The Uncanny. Also, it would be great if you would subscribe to this podcast. Really helpful to us when you subscribe to the podcast uh, and leave a five-star review. That I cannot tell you how helpful that is. Uh, also, if you subscribe to the my personal Andrew Clavin YouTube channel. That is just helpful uh, to you because you will be able uh, to get all this exclusive content that we put up there. If you just ring that uh, little bell, uh, little animals will gather outside. It's like a Disney movie. Little animals will gather outside and sing to you uh, and you will have gone insane. But we'll also (laughs) send you exclusive content. And if you leave a comment and that comment is sufficiently uh, racist and sexist, uh, cruel and just uh, just ugly, it's got to be really ugly then we'll read it on the air because then it'll fit in with the rest of our content. Uh, Today, Jade Spider, uh, referring to my Good Ranchers ad, said uh, Clavin's rap skills uh, just summoned Tupac back from the dead where he immediately ordered a year's supply of Wagyu beef from Good Ranchers. And that actually is true. He's not uh, kidding around about that. Uh, It was such a great rap. Uh, People are just talking about it uh, all over my imagination. You know, with everything in life, there is one way to do it, and then there could be a smarter way. You might already be investing in cryptocurrency, but did you know you can trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and over 80 other cryptocurrencies in a tax advantage IRA? With an Alto Crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and avoid or defer the taxes. Get into investing in crypto and do it in a tax advantage retirement account. Alto's crypto IRA is the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. Trade all you want without the tax headache. Create an account in just a few minutes and invest with as little as 10 bucks with no setup charges. Get secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. There are 150 plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Cardano. Plus, there are multiple ways to fund your account. Open an Alto Crypto IRA account with as little as 10 bucks. Just go to altoira.com slash Andrew. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com slash Andrew. Start investing in cryptocurrency today. Go to altoira.com slash Andrew. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's, this sounds like a small story, but it's, it's actually not. This is a story about the Sports Illustrated uh, swimsuit uh, issue. I ended my, I terminated my uh, subscription to Sports Illustrated years and years ago because of their attacks on God and their constant uh, harping on Democrat and left-wing 
politics, which I didn't want to read about. But now they have put this uh, overweight, uh, unattractive model uh, on the cover of the illustrated, of the uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, a model named Yumi Nu, about whom I know nothing and really need uh, to know nothing to say what I have to say. So Jordan Peterson reacted on Twitter and he tweeted, uh, sorry, not beautiful, and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that, okay? So listen to what he said. He said, no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change the fact that she's not beautiful. She's not. She's overweight and she looks bad in a bathing suit. Uh, So, of course, Jordan came under a slew of Twitter hate uh, for speaking what is the cruel but obvious truth. He's called mean-spirited and misogynist and tolerant, all the usual leftist stuff that you expect. And Jordan answered back and he said, quote, it's a conscious, progressive attempt to manipulate and retool the notion of beauty reliant on the idiot philosophy that such preferences are learned and properly changed by those who knew, know better, but don't let the facts stop you. And he included two uh, scientific studies on attractiveness, which show that even babies react uh, to beautiful people uh, more favorably than they do to other people. It's just, you know, part of the of human nature. And, and remember, this is not beauty in women, like courage in men, is what I call an amoral virtue. It's a good. We recognize that it is good and nice for a woman to be beautiful. We recognize that it's good for a man to be uh, courageous. But we also know that it means nothing without values. A beautiful woman who is evil or a courageous man. You know, Hitler was was brave. He was a brave soldier in World War One. But that, that makes him even worse, just like a a beautiful woman who's evil is even worse. Uh, and so anyway, Jordan took all this abuse and finally under the barrage of abuse, uh, Jordan Peterson said he was leaving Twitter for a while and said he told his staff uh, to change, change his password so he wouldn't be tempted to go back on. He said this endless flood of vicious insult that was making his life worse. And he told his staff to change it. How can I don't know why, why does Jordan, I don't have a staff. I, well, I have the staff I used to part the Red Sea, but I, that's not what I mean. I should have somebody that I can say, you know, hide my password for me. Um, but, you know, you get hate-bombed. I've been hate-bombed on Twitter, and you have to just stop reading them. Most of the people are bots uh, who are doing it, and the ones who aren't bots should be bots. It would improve their personalities if they were bots. But Jordan, and I say this with respect, he can't help doing this because it's such a good trap. He fell into the trap that the left is expert at setting, and you you, you almost cannot help but fall into it because it's such a good trap. Uh, They take a reasonable point. They do this over and over again. They take a reasonable point of politeness, of kindness, of tolerance. Uh, We shouldn't let effeminate boys be bullied or we should stop uh, persecuting people uh, who are gay, you know, or uh, we shouldn't insult women for their looks. That's a perfectly reasonable thing. Uh, We should look beyond their looks. And, and we all say, yes, we all sign on to that. That is quite right. We, sh- we want to be gentlemen. We want to be polite. We want to be good people and not bad people. And then they start to amp that attitude to an extreme case where they say, well, you have to make a cake to my gay wedding or I'm going to destroy you. Or you have to believe that effeminate men can suddenly turn into women or you have to have an attractive woman, an unattractive woman on the swimsuit suit issue. And you say, well, no, that's that's totally different. I don't support that. And then they act like you violated the principle of kindness. You're a bullying, sexist, homophobe, you know. But what they're doing is they're conflating the original principle, the principle of politeness and kindness, with the principle of speaking truth. And they are, you know, basically saying if you speak the truth, you violated the 
politeness rule, but then you can't speak the truth, and then they get to sell you a lie. And they do this again and again and again. Uh, they say women, sh- women should have equal rights. And you go, well, yeah, that's, that's right, of course. They, women should have equal rights. And then they say, and so an equal number of women should be hired by tech companies. And you say, well, I don't know, maybe women aren't as good at tech as men. You're fired. You're a terror. You violated the, oh, you hate women. You're a misogynist. Same trick over and over and over again. And it works for two reasons. One, we're nice people, and we don't like people saying we're not nice. You know, my pal Bill Whittle uh, used to say all the time, calling people racist doesn't work if they're racist, right? If you're racist and if you're a Klansman and somebody says you're a racist, and it's like, well, yeah, that's why I'm wearing this white hood, right? But if you're not racist and you call someone racist, they, they're very upset. Nobody wants, especially in America where we have the, the history of slavery, nobody wants to be called uh, racist. And two, it works because the media is corrupt. They're bullies. They're corrupt bullies. NBC, ABC, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post, they are corrupt bullies, and they pile on. And so you get washed away in this slew of hate. Nobody ever says, well, wait a minute. Jordan wasn't really insulting this woman. You put her in a place where he had to speak the truth, and he said the truth. And, of course, you know, it's unkind to say, uh, that a woman is is fat and ugly or, or just, you know, to insult her looks. We all know that some women are less attractive than others, and we know it's a, a disadvantage because a woman's beauty is valued in society, basically. I mean, her, the, our natural purpose here on Earth as, as physical beings is to reproduce, and so women want to attract men and, and reproduce. And Listen, every single time I would take a homely homemaker over a gorgeous feminist every single time. So we understand there are other values besides beauty, but beauty is a valuable thing, just like courage and men is a valuable, it's an inherently valuable thing. What's terrible, what's terrible about this is that the underlying issue, I mean, Jordan is obviously speaking the truth, and what the underlying issue is more important than whether this particular model is attractive or not, all right? Who cares? The, let's be clear about this. The sports Illustrated swimsuit issue is one thing. It's always been one thing. It is a cheap excuse for Sports Illustrated to sell men pictures of scantily clad hot girls. That's its telos. That's its purpose. That's why it was put out there to make money off pictures of hot babes in very scanty suits. Sometimes they just paint the suit on. The woman is essentially naked with paint on her body. So you get to say, well, I love football, so I subscribe to Sports Illustrated, but once a year, I get to look at svelte girls with big breasts. I mean, that's basically the purpose. That's the purpose of putting this thing out, right? And it was always a sleazy enterprise. I mean, I'd almost rather they just said, you know, here's porn. You know, here's some porn. At least you're honest about it. But but no, it was always a sleazy enterprise. So when they put an overweight, unattractive model on the cover, they are demanding the only purpose of that. Look, there's no, the only reason that th- thing is there is to excite men. It's not like, oh, we want men to be able to look at swimsuits so they can decide what to buy their wives for Mother's Day. Come on. You know, we know what it's there for. And so when they put a fat, ugly girl on the cover, they're demanding that you accept a standard for sexual attractiveness that is not real. And the de- idea is not that it will become real, not that it will suddenly think that overweight girls are pretty. It's the standard will become that whatever the party says is pretty is. That's the whole point. It's not that two and two makes five. It's the two and two is whatever the party says it is. And a, 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 a pretty girl is whatever they tell you it is. And you have no right to have your own tastes and your own standards. And the society has no right to have its standards. So basically, a bunch of sleazy cheesecake peddlers at Sports Illustrated have suddenly been tr- transformed into social justice warriors. These pieces of crap are suddenly the virtuous guys who are going to sell us this new thing. And they create a situation where in order to speak the truth, you have to be 
cruel, and then they attack you for your cruelty. Now, a lot of people are probably thinking, well, the eye of the beholder. Beauty isn't in the eye of the beholder. And I know, I know guys who really like overweight women, and that's wonderful. There's a girl for every boy in the world and a boy for every girl. But it's not the standard of beauty, and it never was. It never was. That standard changes over time. Sometimes we like thinner women. Sometimes we like uh, fuller women. It doesn't matter. It doesn't actually change that much. People are always talking about uh, Rubens, the painter, who painted very, very uh, big girls, lots of cellulite and all this stuff. But that was anomalous. If that, were not, if that were the taste of the time, then all the painters in the Netherlands, all the northern painters would have been painting that, and they weren't. You can search the entire Western history of the nude, and you find a vanishingly, vanishingly small minority of women who look like the girl on the Sports Illustrated cover. And standards, norms, are they mean something. They're a meeting of reality with the human heart and with human nature, right? They're a combination of experience and values. You know, yes, this girl is hot. That's the reality. But if she's not nice, that overrides her. This is how we live our lives. And we have these standards. And what the left is trying to do is overcome your values and overcome your natural experience. Yes, that girl is beautiful. No, that girl is not. To rewrite reality to their specifications. And the reason they want to do that They even have a word for it. They call it replacing the is with the ought, replacing what is with what ought to be, what they think ought to be. And the reason they want to do this is because their ideas for a perfect world turn everything to crap. Socialism, leftism, everything they do fails and fails and fails in reality. So they're trying to eliminate reality. Now, all of this is generated. This assault on human nature, this assault on reality, this idea that everything is a construct comes a lot of it from the philosophy of Michel Foucault, who is, you know, I had a friend in England, his name was Ian Hislop. He's a a very funny humorist. He runs a a humorous magazine. I think he runs Private Eye over there. And he said that Michel Foucault has contributed sweet Foucault to to human history. And that's a joke that's funnier in the English than in American. Uh, But basically, this guy is a sexual pervert who is into sadomasochism. and, And they say little children, though we're not sure about that. He's into sadomasochism. And he basically said that all true is a power structure, and including language. Language is just, just, the meaning of language is just established by power. Because he was into SM, he couldn't even have sex without hurting people or being hurt. So he thought everything was power, and, and that was his argument. And the reason I call this a, a satanic argument, it really is a satanic argument, is because it, it says that there's no truth. It says you can't search for truth. We can't talk to one another because even our language uh, is just a construct. It, it means whatever people say it means. When I say, when that witness, uh, that abortion witness in Congress said, oh yeah, a man can uh, have a baby uh, and have an abortion. Well, no, the definition of a man is that he is somebody who can't have a baby. That is the definition of a man. The definition of a woman is someone who can have a baby. That's what it is. But the, that meaning is only a matter of power. So if there's no truth, and if all truth is power, then the funny thing is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everything becomes about power, because if the only truth is the truth of who has the power, then you want the power, and what they have to do is make you feel guilty for some reason about having power. If you're a white guy who never got a break in life, and you're just putting you know, two coins together, some rich black guy can go on television and say, well, you're white, and you have all the power, so I get to define the meaning of your life. It is an evil philosophy. It's an evil philosophy, because it takes away the the communications between between us. You and I, no matter what color you are, no matter what color I am, should be able to speak with, through reason with words that we both understand and establish where the truth lies. So go ahead, put fat, ugly women on all your magazines, and you can call Jordan Peterson a bad guy all you want, and then you can go to hell because you're a bad person. You're a wicked person hiding behind the mask of social justice. 
Summer, summer is coming. You're going to be traveling. I like to travel. We all like to travel. But you can rest easy when you travel with the protection of Ring Alarm. You probably already have. You should already have a Ring doorbell so you can talk to anybody wherever you are just on the Ring app. You can see them if they come to the door. But Ring makes an alarm system as well. It's an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe. And best of all, you can easily install it yourself. And Ring didn't stop there. They've changed the home security game now with Ring Alarm Pro. When it comes to protecting your home, you should go pro with Ring Alarm Pro. It's a next-level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security. Ring combined a home security system and a Wi-Fi router, so it helps protect your home and secure your network. You may not have known it, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm, and this busy summer season, to protect your home, you're going to want Ring Alarm Pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash Claven. That's ring.com forward slash Claven. Anyone comes to your door, ask them if they know how to spell Claven. And if they say K-L-A-V-A-N, that's right. The alarm just rings automatically. So now that we know what the left is up to, let us talk about Murder Boy, okay? This guy up in Buffalo. The Daily Wire has a policy that we're not supposed to name mass shooters. They think the mass shooter might be motivated by getting fame, so we won't want to give him any fame. You know, I don't know if that's going to do any good, but it's certainly not going to do any harm, and I'm perfectly happy, so I'm going to just call this guy Murder Boy. Uh, this is an 18-year-old kid. He starts doing crazy stuff in school. He comes to school like in a hazmat suit. I mean, he's obviously having some kind of psychotic break. Uh, he was asked, he was at an at-home online school project project, and he was asked what he wanted to do after graduation, and he said, I want to commit murder-suicide, so the state cops take him to a mental hospital for a day, and he convinced them it was a joke, uh, and they release him. And, you know, I have to say, by the way, about this, one of the the many lines of, of inquiry after mass shootings that I'm not that interested in is that law enforcement somehow failed to do anything uh, or that the, you know, social services failed to do anything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm out of temper with law enforcement right now because of the corruption at the FBI, but most cops are just trying to keep people safe, trying to do a good job of, uh, of policing the community. They just can't be on every single joke that a kid makes. Uh, you, you don't want them to be. You don't want them hounding everybody because they say something. We don't want our speech policed, and, and we don't really have a mental health uh, system in this country that can catch this stuff. So I'm not really sure the police uh, failed on this at all. Um, but anyway, the, all along, he convinces the people, the psychiatrists, that he was just clowning around uh, like a, a teenager ki- teenager might stupidly do. Uh, but meanwhile, he's on these dark websites and he's writing like 700 pages of nutcase stuff. Uh, he hates blacks. He hates Jews. He hates Fox News. Uh, he hates Ben Shapiro. <laughs> he had a picture of Ben Shapiro. And he's got this whole thing about uh, repla- the great replacement uh, theory. This is the idea. I think it, I think the idea is that evil Jews uh, are replacing whites with other races. Um, I'm not sure why. I'll have to ask Shapiro. Shapiro, why are you replacing whites? Stop that. Stop that. Stop, Shapiro. It's like it's getting to be like invasion of the body snatchers. Knock it off. Uh, but anyway, the guy's obviously a nut. And uh, he and then he goes out tragically. And, you know, I always say everything is funny in life except other people's pain. And, and here he goes out to a supermarket, which he picked because he thought because of the zip code where he figured a lot of black people would be there. He opens fire. He murders 10 people. Absolute uh, tragedy. And so the reaction, the reaction in the press, we remember uh, 
that crazy black guy in, how do you pronounce it, Waukesha, 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 Wisconsin. Uh, he supported Hitler and Black Lives Matter, and he threatened violence against white people. He drove his SUV into a Christmas parade, killed six people, including a little kid, injured 62 people. And we remember how quickly uh, Joe Biden uh, pushed off to Wisconsin to comfort the afflicted there. We remember this, this exchange between Peter Ducey uh, and Jen Psaki has cut four. Why hasn't the president visited the members of this Christmas parade attack? Well, I would say first, um, as you saw the president convey last week, our hearts go out to this community, to the people in Waukesha, that we've been in touch, obviously, with officials there, and we're all watching as people are recovering, and this is such a difficult time of year for, for this to happen. It's a difficult any time. Uh, obviously, any president going to visit a community requires a lot of assets, requires taking their resources, and uh, it's not something that I have a, a trip previewed at this plan, point in time, but we remain in touch with local officials, and certainly our, our hearts are with the community as they've gone through such a difficult time. Yeah, so nothing, you know, right down the memory hole. The press covered it as if the guy didn't exist, as if the man driving the car didn't even exist, let alone saying that he was black. He wasn't even there. The Washington Post actually write a story, story where they said a car drove into, an SUV drove into the Christmas parade as if nobody was driving the car with no motivation, nothing. Uh, you know, we've got we've to arrest those SUVs. We gotta, you know, when the SUVs make threats, we've got to call them in. Uh, you know, why do the police overlook those rampant SUVs? Anyway, they did absolutely nothing, but this time you will be shocked to hear these, these Democrats, and they are despicable. They are just despicable. Led by despicable Joe, they all in on Murder Boy, because Murder Boy was kind of saying, I mean, he hated the right, he hated Fox News, but he, well, you know, he, he, he basically had this theory that the left has pinned on the right, this uh, replacement theory. Uh, and so they, look, uh, this is the, a blunt way to say it, but it's the truth. They use the bodies of dead black Americans as a podium and they stand on it in order to condemn the right. And here's what Joe Biden went up there immediately, goes up to Buffalo, where nobody's been, by the way. Buffalo is a struggling city, a place with real, real problems, but nobody's done a damn thing about it because the Democrats in New York are too busy paying attention to New York City where their base is. They're ignoring Buffalo. But Biden is off the shuffles off to Buffalo. Uh, here's cut six. Here's what he says. Through the media and politics, the internet, has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost, and isolated individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced, that's the word, replaced, by the other, by people who don't look like them and who are, therefore, in a perverse ideology that they possess and being fed lesser beings. I and all of you reject the lie. I call on all Americans to reject the lie. And I condemn those who spread the lie for power, political gain, and for profit. So let's, let's take a look, since our despicable Joe president uh, is touting this, let's take a look at some of these right-wing conspiracy nuts who are talking about replacing the white people in this country uh, with other kinds of people in order to sway the country in a certain political direction. This is from our friends at the Media Research Center. This is cut number one. Because of demographic changes in this country, I think that the Democratic Party is going to win Texas moving forward, and the Democratic Party is going to be in power 
for the next 30, 40 years. The demographic change that's happening in America right now gives the upper hand to Democrats. The census that just came out especially drives home the point that Texas is next. It's a state where the demographics are changing in ways that are favorable to the Democratic Party. Demographic changes that help the Democrats. Democrats for a decade now, along with Arizona and Texas, have had on this sort of long-term project of, of trying to take uh, some red states across the Sun Belt and flip them blue as demographic changes are taking place there. Democrats should be asking themselves, as a matter of fact, why aren't they dominating in the political landscape. Two decades ago, the influential book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, predicted they would due to demographic changes in the country. We, we, we've been predicting for some time that demographic changes were going to eventually move North Carolina, Georgia, Texas. <laughs> you know, so those were those right-wing conspiracies. Oh, wait, those were all left-wing commentators celebrating the fact that because of illegal immigration, because of the vicious, ruthless, dangerous destruction of our borders that has let drugs come pouring in, Trump tried to stop them, but the Democrats have taken off those holds. The fentanyl is flooding in again. Criminals are flooding in. People with uh, COVID are flooding in. You know, every country has a border except for this one when the Democrats are in charge and they have been... Declaring on them in the media, in the left wing media, which is almost all the media, that soon the Democrats would win elections forever. And Morning Joe keeps saying demographics is destiny. And the reason they keep saying this is because they're racist. They think that if you're not voting for them, you ain't black. That's the whole. It's the most racist ideology ever. And it, and somehow this is all Tucker Carlson's fault. And something must be done about Tucker Carlson. Uh, you know, Carl Cameron. I love the Carl Cameron. This guy is a left wing, really left wing journalist who spent 20 years at Fox News, was their chief political correspondent, which shows you how one sided Fox is. Fox has more leftists on their air uh, than in a week than NBC has real solid right-wingers on their show in a month, okay? So Carl Cameron, he knows what needs to be done with Tucker Carlson and all these people who are talking about this, is cut 12. we got to watch out because the Republicans have become the purveyors of misinformation. And when our, our two-party system is broken like that, democracy is seriously in trouble. The president acknowledged that. It's time to actually start doing things and maybe taking some names and putting people in jail. <laughs> That's what we got to do with Tucker. We got to take that guy down. The governor of New York, uh, I, I can't remember, Hockle, the woman's an idiot, governor idiot. Uh, she's saying we've got to shut down any website. We got to search for those keywords and shut down any website. If they stop talking about demographic shift, as destiny in this country, Morning Joe would be off the air, MSNBC would be off the air. I'll tell you who wouldn't be off the air, Tucker Carlson. I watch Tucker Carlson, not all the time, but a lot. And he basically has said, and I've noticed this too, is that this, if this is their strategy, if letting the border open to let in uh, new people so they'll vote Democrat is their strategy, it's not working. It's not working. People from south of the border who come over here and become American citizens and vote are moving toward the right because they can see what buffoons these people are. Blacks are moving a little slower, but they're starting to move a little bit too. Why? Because people of other colors are people. And eventually they start to see, oh, this doesn't work. This isn't good for me. I'm not going to do this any, anymore. And this whole thing about demographics is destiny happens to be wrong because racism is wrong. The whole theory of race as essential 
is wrong. And the Democrats have been using that forever. If they can just convince you that everybody hates you, then you'll vote for them because they said this. Democrats, I, I swear, I said this before and I mean it. The Democrats treat our black citizens like garbage. They treat them like animals. They say, you know, while blacks are doing poorly in school, uh, we have to lower the standards. We have to get rid of tests. You say, well, why don't you just raise the schools? Why don't you teach them, find better methods of teaching? You know, it's like, uh, yeah, well, we, yeah, we're not going to do that. You say, well, you know, blacks are getting arrested. We have to start decriminalizing crime. You think, well, why not, you know, go into their communities and start to talk about crime and what, what can be done about it. Like, for instance, keeping families together and having churches that actually preach the gospel. Those are things that actually help against crime and have been shown to help. No, 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 we can't do that because they basically, they believe that black people can't improve. They're so disrespectful. It is so, it's so infuriating that they then, you know, sell this. So anyway, it's all Tucker Carlson's fault. This, this, this mad killer, this guy who's like a lunatic, barely know he barely knows where he is. You know, he's obviously, he is obviously to me schizophrenic. I mean, he's obviously having a, a schizophrenic break. This is the age, 17, 18 is the age when schizophrenia typically uh, turns up. And I think it's just turned up in him. Uh, it, one of the heartbreaking things he said in his manifesto was, you know, something in my heart tells me there's a better way but logic convinces me that this is what I must do. And that is what happens to people with bad philosophies. You know, God is talking to you. He's saying, dude, dude, you know, wake up, come back, come back on the love side. And your mind is going, yeah, but this is, you know, I got to get, I got to kill these people. I got to do this. It's logic. It's logic. It's, it's just a very, very sad thing to watch this kid go down the drain. And then, of course, he loses all sympathy because he has created such a tragedy. You know, certain people just make my life so much easier and none of them work here. <laughs> the reason is because we didn't use ZipRecruiter. If you own a growing business and need to hire, ZipRecruiter makes hiring so much easier because they do the work for you. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates with your job. You can easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top choices to apply. And ZipRecruiter has a complete suite of tools that makes it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates. When you watch my show, you have to be thinking, please, please use ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated hiring site based on G2 satisfaction ratings as of January 1st, 2022. In fact, the hardest thing you have to do is to remember the special URL, ziprecruiter.com slash Clavin. That's where you go to try ZipRecruiter for free. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. But yes, you say, how do you spell Clavin? Well, you could hire someone to tell you it's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. It's not just Tucker Carlson. We don't want to single Tucker Carlson all, uh, out. Here is uh, commentator, lawyer and commentator Bakari Sellers telling us the real problem. This cut nine. The tragedy in this is that it's a cycle. This is who America is. We have this racist attack. We have outrage. We have thoughts and prayers. We have political back and forth. And then we have an entire cycle where it happens over and over and over again. So, so this, is Amer this is who America is. America is a schizophrenic gunman uh, who hates black people. That's, that's who America is. That's how Bakari Sellers got his legal degree. That's how he got on TV, because America is this crazed gunman going around. Well, let's take a look. Let's take a look at some of the rising racism in the only white uh, majority country on earth that has ever elected a black leader twice. Uh, let's take a look at the rising tide of racism. Here is a sample of racism collected by the Washington Post that includes uh, Oprah Winfrey talking. Uh, this is cut number two. 
you still have your whiteness. That's what the that's what the term white privilege is. It means that whiteness still gives you an advantage no matter what. If you are not careful, your children will live their whole life white. And at 26, 27, they'll end up being a part of the problem because you just let them and allowed them to live a completely white, sheltered and cultureless life. Whiteness is not phenotypic whiteness. There's white people and there's people who happen to be white, for sure. Anyone that is born in the world because whiteness is global can absolutely abide by tenets of whiteness. This is why we have Candace Owens. This is why we have Daniel J. Cameron. This is why we have black folks who will say critical race theory is trash. I'm still just really confused by whiteness. I'm sorry, like... Whiteness represents white guilt, white fragility, white supremacy, white violence. Uh, all of these things are now synonymous with whiteness, which I see as a stand-in for white supremacy. That's amazing. I will I will take responsibility for things that bad white people have done in the past just as soon as I collect royalties for things white people have invented. You know, I mean, it's like it's, it's absurd. It is absurd racism. And again, it comes from this Foucault philosophy of power. You heard her say Candace Owens is white because she doesn't agree with this philosophy. So if you don't agree with the philosophy, uh, you know, you, you're white. You ain't black. You're, you're white. It's all about the power, the power defining things. It's all this Foucault idea that truth is not truth. Uh, your truth is not truth because you have the power. But my truth is truth because I don't have power. And power defines truth, so I don't have power, so it's not truth, but it is truth because I don't have power, but you have power, so your truth isn't truth. I mean, that's basically what, you know, it's just a complete, the complete, what it comes down to in the end is what we say is true, get in line or you are going to be silenced. That's what it comes down to. Because when you think that all truth is power, there's only power, there is no truth. When you believe in reason, when you believe in logic, when you believe in the love of the heart, then we have something to talk about and we're just two human beings sitting together no matter what color we are, we're sitting together trying to find a way forward. It's a very different world that we're talking about. Yes, you know, truth is hard to find and you approach it by half measures, but you approach it through reason, by language, meaning what it means, and by agreeing, basically, that uh, we must love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's how you get to any kind of truth. Just as an aside, I want to—I have to do a whole show about this or a whole segment about this one day. This, this CRT, this racist awful, ugly philosophy of the left, this philosophy that your white, your whiteness is evil, uh, that blackness somehow has some kind of uh, superior holiness to it. All of this is part of the reaction to assimilation. I know that sounds uh, counterintuitive, uh, but it's, it's not. Uh, you know, as you are, assimilation is very difficult. A lot of great art in America is about assimilation. The Godfather, uh, that that show, uh, that movie, Get Out, is about assimilation. Oh, a black guy is going to marry a white girl, but they're going to steal his soul. A wonderful novel, The Adventures of Augie March. It's all this stuff about what that that tug you feel between your native culture, this culture that has been part of your bloodstream for hundreds of years, and America saying, just come on in and be an American and you know, bring your food and your funny hats, but leave the, the feuds and all that stuff behind. It's very difficult. When I understood that I was going to uh, convert to Christianity as a Jew, I suddenly was, became hyper aware 
of the anti-Semitism in Christian thought, you know, in historically in Christian thought. Uh, and that's what's happening to blacks. They've been accepted. We say, yeah, you know, Barack Obama can be president. We'll, we'll vote for you. We don't care. You know, you're welcome. As long as you behave well, you're welcome. And they think, yes, okay, but am I losing my soul? You know, are you stealing my soul? So that's when the struggle becomes the greatest when you've been accepted. It's not before. It's when you've been accepted that that struggle in your heart uh, gets very intense. Anyway, they didn't do this when that guy opened fire in the subway because uh, he was sick of those MF white people. Uh, they didn't call for the censorship of Black Lives Matter. Uh, you know, really the only real racists left in the mainstream, obviously there are racists all the time, but the only real racists are on the left with this nonsense, this CRT. And, you know, they're basically saying it's not racist when we do it. All of this, as far as I'm concerned, is a way of escaping the subject of mental illness. And I know mental illness is not a great subject to talk about because it's not political. Uh, it, you know, there's fault on both sides. But, you know, this guy was, murder boy was nuts. The clown in Waukesha was nuts. It doesn't mean they're not evil because most mentally ill people are not, don't do bad things. But those mental, but the devil gets into us in our, through our broken places, right? And so when you're mentally ill, he's got a good shot at coming in and starting to say these things where you say, well, my heart is telling me not to do that. And the devil is saying, yeah, but logic, logic, you got to go out and kill people. These people should be institutionalized. The people who are living on the streets should be institutionalized. You know, and all those institutions were shut down, and they were shut down for three reasons. I'll tell you two of them right away. One reason was because nice liberal people were appalled by the revelations that a lot of these asylums were snake bits and the people were being abused and they were right and they were shutting them down. The second reason was that responsible conservative people, nice Republican people, were appalled by the cost. Some states were spending as much as a third of their budgets on mental institutions. So the Republicans, the conservatives were right as well. And they closed the hospitals. They promised there was going to be community care and they were going to be putting... Uh, halfway houses. They're not in halfway houses. They're on the street. You know where the three largest facilities are for housing the mentally ill? I'll tell you where they are. Rikers Island Prison, Chicago's Cook County Jail, and L.A. County Jail. Rikers Island is also a jail. They're not prisons. They, these guys are on the streets. Those few of them who get violent get arrested. It's like torture, torture putting a mentally ill person uh, in, in a prison. They have drugs. The drugs are not working as well as they are as they should. Uh, it's a really difficult situation. But every time you try and put these guys in asylums, the left stops you. Why? It's because of the third reason. The third reason is Michel Foucault, who said that mental illness is just a power structure. It's just something that powerful people create, uh, you know, to, to get rid of people who don't fall in line with the power. The World Health Organization, that incredibly stupid group of people who caused a lot of the problems with COVID, they just put out a 300-page directive on the human rights of mental health clients it calls for an end to all involuntary or coercive treatment, which is just wrong, uh, and to the dominance of the pharmaceutical approach, calls for an end to the dom dominance of the pharmaceutical approach, which isn't working well, but is all that we have. Uh, and it, it says psychiatrists, problematic drugs, uh, the WHO maintains must no longer be an unquestioned mainstay. And they say that... Um, the practitioners cannot put their expertise above the expertise and experience of those they're trying to support. So in other words, the lived experience of a mentally ill person is now supposed to trump medical opinion uh, when people can't take care of themselves. So there are no norms. There's no reality. It's Foucault pop popping up again. The guy was as close to Satan as you get because he poisoned the well of intellectual life. This is one of these things, these, these periods of madness always go through intellectual life uh, and when it comes to mental illness, when it comes to madness, um, it, it's going to 
torment the, the weakest people, uh, the weakest people. These guys have to be put away. They have to be taken off the streets. The homeless situation is because of mental illness and drugs, and drugs are often a way of self-medicating for mentally ill people. We have to remember that there are standards, our values matter, our perceptions matter. When you say somebody's mentally ill because he thinks he sees something that's there that isn't there, he sees himself as a woman when he's a man, that's mental illness because there is a reality and we can see it and we can find out what it is. The left has been pounding away for the end of values, the end of standards, the end of normalcy, the end of truth, and they've left these people homeless and imprisoned. And when they become violent, they've left them dangerous as well. Now, as you know, I'm an independent contractor. I am a small business. You're looking at a small business. And one of the biggest things you've got to know in small business is how to market yourself. Constant Contact is a digital marketing platform that helps small businesses and nonprofits of all sizes build, grow, and succeed. With email marketing, contact management, industry-leading list growth tools, social media ads, and more, Constant Contact helps small businesses connect with customers, find new customers, and sell online all from one easy-to-use platform. They've been trusted by millions of businesses to help improve their marketing. With a 97% deliverability rate, you can rest assured that your customers and potential customers are getting the right message at the right time. With a simple interface, Constant Contact's easy-to-use platform makes contact management easier than ever. Their list growth tools help you find a bigger audience fast. Lead generation landing pages, text to join, and social media ads are proven to grow your list and drive engagement with your brand. With thousands of integrations, you can sync Constant Contact's tools with the tools you're already using. Powerful automation tools help you send the right message to the right person at the right time every time. To start your free digital marketing trial today, visit ConstantContact.com. So I think we do have to pause for just a minute to celebrate some of the victories that we have been scoring on the right. You know, it's not all uh, bad news. In fact, a lot of the news, I think, culturally is really good. Uh, Netflix sent out a letter to its uh, its people saying we're not going to do be, be woke anymore. If you can't let uh, various opinions speak, then maybe Netflix is not the right place for you uh, to work. They've taken down some of their projects, like an Ibram Kendi. Ibram Kendi, who I think is really a dope. Uh, you know, they've taken down his anti-racist baby project over there. So some of the woke stuff is going down. And most importantly, the Disinformation Bureau from Homeland Security, this Orwellian craziness has been put on hold. Nina Jankowitz uh, resigned. Uh, she was, you know, now she's the victim. She is the victim. Uh, you know, this is this woman, remember, who sang Super califragilistic, expialidocious, uh, telling us that anything she disagreed with was disinformation, saying basically that any time you attacked a woman politician, it was a, uh, a, a dog whistle of misogyny, right? It was, it was a way of uh, spreading disinformation about women and could be attacked by the government, right? And now she's the victim because she had to resign. Here she is on MSNBC explaining her plight, uh, Cut 22. I have prided myself over my career of being a really nuanced, uh, reasonable person. Again, as I said, I've I've briefed and advised both Republicans and Democrats. I admire some of the steps that the Trump administration even took to combat disinformation, including Senator Rob Portman and his bills against deep fakes and, you know, funding the Global Engagement Center at the State Department. So to say that I'm just a partisan actor was was wildly out of context. And then beyond that, it wasn't just, you know, these mischaracterizations of of my work, but it was death threats against my family. 
Well, death threats, of course, are always wrong and always terrible, and that's a that's a shame, and it also uh, discredits the people who are actually saying the truth, because she, right there, is lying. She is not a nonpartisan. Uh, she pushed the the claim that Trump had a tie to a Russian bank, which we now know is completely false. Uh, she went after the Hunter Biden lobs, uh, laptop story. She called it a Trump campaign uh, product. And, and again, she declared that any criticism of women was inherently misogynistic and therefore disinformation. She is a total left-wing partisan and also a total loon singing supercalifragilistic. You know, she's just a complete, uh, she's one of these people who's so wrapped up in uh, a world that agrees with her, that she doesn't know what she looks like to the rest of us, which is most of us, is most people. Peter Ducci, again, uh, went after Corinne Jean-Pierre, uh, who is the new uh, press secretary, a first black gay immigrant, uh, to be such a complete twit. Here's uh, Ducey taking her on cut 19. So if it's pausing because you think the board was mischaracterized, then the disinformation board is being shut down because of disinformation? Is that what's happening here? Look, I mean, the the board was put forth for a purpose, right? To make sure that we really did did address what was happening across the country when it came to disinformation. It's just going, it's it's going to pause. There's been a mischaracterations from outside, uh, outside forces. And so now what we're going to do is going to, we're going to pause it and we're going to do an assessment. They're quietly doing this in the Navy, too. This was on a little website. Top Navy Admiral quietly removes woke books uh, from the Navy's reading list. This is happening all over. The thing is, Americans are basically not racist. In fact, having lived overseas, I can tell you they're the least racist people on Earth. We, We all have racism. We all have bigotry. We all have sin in our hearts. Uh, but but still, America as a system is a system that is a machine for bringing people in and bringing people up. But the thing is, once you admit that people aren't racist, then you have to admit that you are in a different argument than you say you are. We're not having an argument between hate and not hate. We're having an argument between which policy helps people the most, right? And the, the people on the right basically are saying, the left, I mean, they basically think it helps blacks if we lower standards so they can get higher grades instead of saying, no, we need better education. They think they can decriminalize crime instead of saying, no, we need stronger families, uh, stronger moral teaching. Uh, And they reject white ideas like reason and math. That's going to help black people a lot. But we on the right, at least me, what I think is that freedom is a mirror. Freedom is a mirror. If you don't like what you see in that mirror, take responsibility for it and change it. People fight all kinds of obstacles to get to America, to become part of American uh, society, to win acceptance in American society, to take advantage of the things we have. You won. You won. And God bless you. You should have won and you won. The rest is up to you. So once a month, we like to bring on Megan Basham, the Daily Wire entertainment reporter. She has been doing such a terrific job covering the culture uh, for the Daily Wire, and she's seeing stuff that other people don't see. Uh, so today, I want to talk to her about a story she's writing. It hasn't occur- uh, appeared yet, so you'll be getting a little bit of a, a preview of it. Megan, you there? I am. Thanks so much for having me. It's always great to see you. Uh, you know, this story that you're working on, it's like it's like a new kind of uh, sneak attack on the Christian church coming from the media. It almost seems coordinated. Can you explain what you're seeing? Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm trying to work out is how much is this coordinated? How much is it intentional? I think on the media's part, it's very intentional. So I would say in the past, what you tended to have from these um, major establishment outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, 
um, was negative reporting on the state of the church, on Christians, on what Christians were doing in politics, on the activism they were taking up. And it was sort of an outside view. Now what we seem to have evolved into is something new where um, they will sort of focus the camera, let's say, in a story on a more progressive, I won't say progressive because these are people who still hold to um, biblical sexual ethics. They they would still describe themselves as pro-life, but you would call them more progressive than um, the general swath of Christians who tend to vote Republican, who tend to only limit pro-life to meaning overturning Roe v. Wade and protecting babies. This is a broader definition of pro-life. So they sort of focus the camera on these people to offer a criticism of the rest of the Christians, uh, particularly in the evangelical world. This is very specific to that subculture, I would say. Uh, And so when they do that, I'll give you an example. Last week, three different stories came out, one in the Washington Post, one in the New York Times, and one in the Atlantic. And, And in all three... Um, These sort of dissident evangelicals were the focus. Uh, One, for example, was a professor, a seminary professor, author, religion news columnist, Karen Swallow Pryor, where she was lamenting how the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade came about. And she was very clear that she feels conflicted about this, that she's having a hard time celebrating it because she feels such strong moral compromises were made. And by that, of course, she means the people who voted for Trump to get those justices on the Supreme Court. So she feels that this has been really sullied and it's been so damaging that, um, I I mean, in the article, she says, I want to take it back. I want to take back what the pro-life movement has done, what they've been working toward. I'm not saying she's, you know, wants to take back saving the lives of infants, but she seems to have felt that it was a very Faustian bargain. and, And that has indicted the other Christians who were willing to make these pragmatic choices as being obsessed with politics as making an idol out of politics. Uh, The other two articles did very similar things, but um, the one in the New York Times focused on race. They they described the pastor as trying to find a third way to to find another way beyond politics, whereas the uh, parishioners who did not appreciate the discussion of um, how if they looked like him or grew up like him, by which the inference is white, then they have bigotry in their hearts. A lot of people felt, okay, that's that's pretty one-sided, and it aligns very well with the narrative that we've heard from the left for the last couple of years that we're living in a systemically racist nation, and that only one particular skin color uh, struggles with the issue of bigotry or um, bias or racism. And, and I think that you know anybody who's read the Bible goes, look, we all harbor these sins in our heart. You cannot isolate it to one particular um, ethnic group. So that's really how this is taking shape, that it's changed from outside criticism to using some of these individuals to bring about internal criticism. Did you know nine out of 10 people still buy hearing aids from clinics and pay $5,000 or more? Every time somebody says that to me, I say, what, sorry? I couldn't hear you. That's why you've got to check out MD Hearing Aid. MD Hearing Aid is an FDA-registered rechargeable hearing aid that costs a fraction of what typical hearing aids cost. They bring clinic-level care right to you via telemedicine from doctors and licensed hearing professionals. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who saw how many of his patients needed hearing aids but couldn't afford them. He made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. If you forget to take your hearing aids off in the shower, don't worry. You could put these things in three feet of water. The Volt Plus is 
water resistant, plus it's rechargeable with battery life that lasts up to 30 hours. MD Hearing Aid has brought affordable hearing to over 600,000 satisfied customers, plus they offer a 40 five-day risk-free trial with a 100% money-back guarantee so you can buy with confidence. Get clinic-level care for 80% less with MD Hearing Aid. Go to mdhearing.com and use promo code CLAVEN to get their new buy one, get one, $149.99 each when you buy a pair deal. Plus, they're adding a free extra charging case, $100 value, just for listeners of The Andrew Claven Show. So head to mdhearing.com and use our promo code CLAVEN and get their new buy one, get one, $149.99 each when you buy a pair deal. So do you think this is a, a, an instance of the mainstream media, as they, I, they, we shouldn't call them that, the leftist media, right. um, smelling blood in the water? Because, I mean, I know, for instance, when I visit uh, Brooklyn, uh, you know, Park Slope, the kind of heart of dar- liberal darkness, there's not, not a church that doesn't have a, a sign saying we are inclusive, right. uh, which, which is interesting because actually churches are not inclusive. They only a- include people who believe in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, and I, I know where I am there, there's one church at least with a huge Black Lives Matter banner up. Um, there are a lot of uh, churches kind of celebrating Black Lives Matter and with Black Lives Matter signs. So do you think it's that they think, oh, wait a minute, you know, we, we actually have made some, um, some headway maybe we should encourage this movement. Is that, do you think that's a motivation? Yeah, I I mean, I think from the media's perspective, it absolutely is. And and I'll be honest, I think it's uh, deliberate. I don't think this is just an entirely organic development. Now, who the first person was to tip that domino, I don't know, but there's a few religion reporters in those outlets who continue to hammer, hammer, hammer. So when you see that same article popping up, again, three in a week. And in the last two years, I, I, I've seen at least a couple dozen. You go, I, I don't believe that this is um, just a purely natural product of um, we're just covering what's out there. It seems like they're looking for angles to push in that way. But in a way that makes sense because you go, you look at the Republican Party, for instance, or, or even just conservative politics. I don't think you have to isolate it to Republicans specifically, but in terms of gaining ground for, say, the cause of life, for overturning Roe v. Wade, for um, retaining whatever degree of sexual ethics that we still have, there is no stronger force in the United States than evangelicals. Mm. So the idea that um, they were going to be left alone just as an opponent and not try to be co-opted as an ally seems really naive now when you look at that. Um, And so I feel like there are these forces who are trying to co-opt them as an ally. The question for me is, are those who are sort of aligning themselves with the left, is is it a question of looking for approval? Is it rogue agents. I, that's what I can't quite figure out. You know, I there was one pastor I cover in this upcoming story who um, very strongly argued that Christians need to take up the issue of climate change. And that was really interesting to me. And his reasoning was extremely um, just sort of derivative of your average general leftist talking points. It didn't even feel like He was trying to make a strong biblical argument for it. It was things like, oh, fossil fuels um, are causing carbon emissions. There's population explosion. And then while saying that the reason Christians have not taken up the issue of climate change is because they um, have these political idols, he then appealed to the IPCC, uh, um, which if you're not familiar, it's an arm of the UN. It's the climate change arm of the UN. 
Um, I think it's the International Policy of Climate Change, something like that. Um, and if you know anything about that body, you know that um, it, it's deeply corrupt. It's extremely political. Yeah. Uh, they've faked research. They've suppressed evidence um, of their, their own scientists' findings that went against the uh, sacred cows of climate change activism. So that was really interesting to go. You have a pastor who himself is making highly political arguments. Um, so that's what I'm looking at that going as I'm still working through the story going, to what degree is this um, just a desire to align themselves with something in the culture that they feel like at least it's not clear-cut anti-biblical, like something like the transgender movement. It feels yeah. like at least um, you can make some sort of creation argument because we do want to be good stewards of creation. So it feels like they're saying, okay, here's something I can sort of take up or the racism question, um, the CRT. There's, there is a sense in which you go, of course, uh, there is no Jew nor Greek. There's no man. Well, that's, no. that's the thing. Yeah. This is the thing that bothers me about the, the Black Lives Matter thing. I mean, the, black, the entire concept of a black life is anti-Christian. I don't think people have black lives. I think they have lives that are in God's image, you know, and it's like, it's, it seems to me that it is, uh, you know, we're, we're hearing this from some very substantial uh, evangelical Christians, uh, guys like, I mean, I don't know where Tim Keller is exactly on this, but I, I, he's a guy I've read like maybe five of his books. He's, he can be quite good uh, theologically, but he seems to kind of be drifting into this, into this pool of racist thought. Well, and what's been interesting is you look at Keller and you go, so he's someone who had such success in the urban world, in the urban atmosphere, coming into a place like New York City and establishing a church, establishing a church that was really successful. You have yeah. to go, that is an incredible accomplishment. But to do it, um, part of what he did was sort of chart that third way. And I think that was easier in the past. I think, um, you know, I heard someone say recently that Tim Keller is still living in a Bill Clinton world mm. where he there's still these things where we might say we want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. He's not dealing in a world where we want abortion up to the you know, very end, right before you know, a child comes down the birth canal, you can kill that child. He's not living in a world where women are shouting their abortions. Um, and so it feels like that may be part of the problem is there just hasn't been um, real reckoning with where we are now in the culture. Mm. You know, there's a line in uh, Yuval Harari's book, Homo Deus, where he says that because I, I want to flip the script for a minute and just think of this from the other direction. He, right. he says basically that when people want to accept, say, gay marriage uh, and they're religious people and they're Christians, they go to the Bible and they'll look, look through the Bible looking for an excuse to accept gay marriage. But he says they pretend their idea, I'm quoting from him, they pretend the idea originated in the Bible when in fact it originated with Foucault. It originated with Michel Foucault. Does... Does the Bible, does, do evangelicals have a way of adapting uh, to, to a new world that is, in fact, biblical? Or is there some way in which the world is leaving them behind? Um, you know, in other words, in, in other words, we don't want to live, I don't want to live in a, a first century world. I mean, I think the mm -hmm. world has changed and technology changes things and situations change. And I think one of the reasons God comes to us as a human being is so that we're not living in this rule-based world. We're living in a more flexible universe. Um, but 
But what I'm wondering is, is, is there any theology behind this? In other words, are these guys actually coming up with a theology or are they just reading the New York Times and parroting what they hear? I mean, I, I'll be completely transparent that most of the arguments I see tend to sound to me like we're just reading the New York Times yeah. and parroting what they hear. And part yeah. of the reason I say that is you look at something like Buffalo, um, this terrible shooting where you had this deranged racist killer and immediately I saw, you know, several prominent pastors, church leaders, Beth Moore, Gavin Ortland, other people who's, who, who, who are very much in the mainstream of evangelicalism, immediately turned to this idea that the church would, um, had somehow contributed to it, that its, its contribution to white supremacy through mm -hmm. Donald Trump made them somewhat responsible for what happened there. You know, in, oh, in oh. one case, he said, you know, th this particular pastor said it should be uncontroversial to say that white supremacy is evil or something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. But it should be un uncontroversial to say that in the church today. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And that kind of took me aback because I went, I, I just don't know any Christians who would say, nah, white supremacy. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know those Christians, you know, or, yeah. or you know, yeah. Beth said we need to take off our political lenses. And I, you know, okay, well, which political lenses, what are you talking about? And how does that relate? And in the case of that first pastor, he, he pointed to Tucker Carlson. Um, and he pointed to Tucker Carlson speaking about voting uh, trends and how immigration is impacting the electorate. And look, you know, Tucker Carlson may not always choose his words well on some of those topics, but there is no evidence that he was any kind of motivating factor for the shooter. So that to me felt like, okay, you guys didn't even think this through. You just immediately said what Chuck Schumer was saying, what Joe Biden was saying. So that was really strange for me that I go, what is the theology of that? And that quickly. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I have a hard time making sense of that. And, you know, getting back to Tim Keller even things like abortion, which we were at one point very clear on, he has lately said some really odd things, you know, like the Bible tells us that life is precious, but the Bible doesn't tell us the best way to protect life. So <laughs> not, right. not kill, not ending it is one good way. <laughs> right. But he's saying it may not necessarily need to be through the law. Maybe we protect life. And if you follow these discussions, there has been an argument that their Democrat policies can also be pro-life with regard to abortion. If you have a bigger social safety net, women won't need abortions. Um, so I, I look at that and I go, I need to hear a little more. And maybe part of the problem is everyone's having these conversations on social media. Yeah. So I go, maybe don't talk about it on Twitter before you've written out your thoughts and really grounded them in scripture and go, okay, where does this arise from theologically? Yeah, yeah. All right, I, I got to stop you there, but this is a really interesting story. I hope you keep covering it, uh, and we will have you back again next month to talk about more stuff. You're doing a great job. Megan Basham, uh, our entertainment reporter at The Daily Wire. It's always good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Andrew. Thanks. 
So if you're sitting around in your car that doesn't work and wondering why you can't find a date, it's because you haven't gone to rockauto.com. You haven't even said rockauto.com because you'd have a date right away because people would know you know how to fix your car without pretending to drive a car that's not moving down to a make-believe car parts store and getting parts that aren't there because the whole thing is make-believe. If you go to rockauto.com to shop, you go right on your computer, you get their fantastic uh, catalog with so many auto parts and body parts for great prices. They have everything from engine control models and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Plus, it just sounds so cool to say rockauto.com. The women go nuts and they understand that you're not an idiot sitting in a car that doesn't work. Plus, you can get all the parts you need at great prices. The rockauto.com catalog is so easy to use and the prices are great. Go to rockauto.com right now and got to say it, go to rockauto.com and see all the parts available for your car or truck and write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us box? So they know I sent you and say it like that. Say Clavin, K-L-A-V. Brett Easton Ellis, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Dave Rubin, know what those folks have in common? Not much, except for the fact they've all been on Sunday Special, the weekend edition of The Ben Shapiro Show. That's right, a show where people with different points of view are actually allowed to express those points of view. Imagine that. You know, we do things differently at The Daily Wire. For one thing, we're not afraid to follow the truth wherever it goes. You'll see that in our newest documentary with Candace Owens called The Greatest Lie Ever Told, a hard-hitting expose about the death of George Floyd and the rise of BLM. And you'll also find it on this week's Sunday special with Ben's guest, Jonathan Isaac. He'll be discussing Why I Stand, the new book he just released with The Daily Wire. Isaac was the lone NBA player not to kneel for the national anthem during a league-wide demonstration in support of Black Lives Matter. His story is powerful and inspiring. Sunday special is available Sunday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in and learn. One of the things I'm really excited about is DW Books, the fact that we are putting out books that other people truly will not uh, put out. One of them uh, that is out, I uh, came out earlier this month, I think it's already uh, on one of the bestseller lists at, at Amazon, uh, is by Julio Rosas, who is a senior uh, writer for Town Hall and was on the ground at the center of the, the most severe riots we've had in, in years and years. Uh, he has written a book called Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America. Here's a, a clip for the book. This is Cut 105. The media gaslit the American people for all of 2020 as the riots unfolded. They did not give you the full story. I was there. George Floyd, Kyle Rittenhouse, Ray Sharp Books, Chaz in Seattle. I saw all the riots with my own eyes. Windshields being smashed, giant rocks that were being thrown. Businesses that were starting to be looted. The crowd started to become hostile. All the cops were trapped and surrounded. Police were being ordered to, to retreat. I experienced the, the tear gas. I experienced the smoke. This was very real to me. The mainstream media, they were trying to call them protests. CNN with that Chiron saying fiery but mostly peaceful. They're trying to push a narrative of don't believe your lying eyes because they were trying to appease that very dedicated Antifa movement that's there. When you read my book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, you will get the full story. You will learn what actually happened during the riots of 2020 and what the media did not want to tell you. Buy my book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, everywhere books are sold. Uh, the book is Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America. The author is Julio Rosas, senior writer for Town Hall. Julio, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. 
so wait, were you, in fact, at Town Hall when uh, this story first broke? Yes, yeah, I, I joined Town Hall in late 2019. And, and the quick funny story behind that is uh, I'd covered some protests earlier. And so when they said, well, what do you want to do at Town Hall? I said, well, I can do the daily stuff. But whenever there's protests or riots breaking out, uh, I want to go travel. And then 2020 happened. So we really uh, we really got uh, our, our full money's worth out of that deal. Where, where were you when you heard that George Floyd had died, that this was becoming a thing? So I was in Los Angeles. I was with family since this was still, you know, the early days of the, the COVID lockdowns. And I didn't want to be in the D.C. area. There's no point. So I decided to, to visit family. And so uh, it was I was actually late to, to that to to seeing the video uh, of George Floyd and what happened to him uh, because my my uh, being on different time zones and operating on Eastern time while I was on the on the West Coast uh, doesn't really bode too well for me. So I woke up that morning actually kind of late and by the time I saw Twitter and it was already, you know, uh, the main thing. And, and I realized that um, there was going to be some reaction uh, to it for obvious reasons, but uh, I didn't think, I, I thought because of COVID that it wasn't going to be anywhere near as to what actually happened. But obviously that, that wasn't the case. Where, where did you go first? Where, where did you go to cover the story? So I went. I went right to Minneapolis, uh, and it, it was uh, by. I got there. So right. So the so the video of George Floyd uh, went viral on Monday, and I got there on the ground by Thursday, and and it was it was insane how uh, basically the the basic tenets of what we know to be just a civilized society, especially in in, in the country. Was just not there. Um, when I got to the neighborhood where the third precinct was located, where Derek Chauvin and the other officers were based out of, uh, the the neighborhood was just in complete chaos. But it was it was it was not not to say that it was controlled chaos, but it because it was during the day and you know people get more active at night. It was just people were just doing whatever they wanted throughout because there was no cops because they were all holed up trying to protect the third precinct from being burned down. Mm. So what what were they doing? What were the protesters doing? Well, so there were there were three kind of distinct groups. The first group was just dedicated to just protesting right outside the third precinct, um, and and that was actually peaceful. They they were angry. They were they were hostile uh, in in a sense, but they didn't do anything during during the daylight hours. And then uh, right across the street, there was that that strip mall that had a Target, that had a grocery store, and several other small businesses, and they were being just looted throughout throughout the day. Some people were cleaning up the mess from the night before, but. Uh, it was just it, people were just doing whatever they wanted, and people were trying to uh, were trying to actually do uh, violence, you know, trying to commit violence against the officers. But there were people within the crowd at that point stopping them. But as day turned into night, those people left, the peaceful people left, and a whole new group kind of came in, and and the night's uh, events unfolded. And that was the night when they were ordered to evacuate from, from the third precinct, and it was a so- fire. So you're standing there, there's all, people are looting. Other people, the decent folks are trying to keep people from going absolutely bats. And the cops, are the cops nowhere in sight? No, like I said, they were just mainly holed up, at least in that, at least in that immediate vicinity, they were just holed up in, in, their, in, in, the, in the building because uh, going out was, was not really an option just because there were so many people who were out on the street. And also because the one time that there were officers who came into the crowd uh, because someone had gotten stabbed. And so they, they went in to arrest the person and try to get the person who got stabbed uh, medical attention. 
but they were the they were that's when things became a little violent during the day because they were trying to uh, they said that they didn't want the police officers to take away the, vic- the stabbing victim. They wanted an ambulance to come in, and the cops had to tell the crowd the ambulance is coming because you guys are being you guys are being violent. Uh, you know they're not going to risk their lives doing that, uh, which again was kind of shocking to, to hear at, at how you know when you call nine one one for an ambulance in the, in this country, you expect an ambulance to show up, right? Uh, so it, it's just there. There was no there was no police presence outside of outside of uh, that building. Were the people who were protesting, the people who were angrily protesting, were they trying to stop the looting and the violence at all? Or were they just no. disconnected from it? No, not not. No. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. All right, so now now night falls. What happens then? I mean, it, it was, it was, it, it just, people uh, were, there were, there had been a fencing that, kind of similar to what's been put up around the Supreme Court and and, yeah. and the Capitol buildings, similar, not not exactly, but there had a, a fence was erected around the precinct uh, the day before, and so people uh, started to shake the fence down, and they actually were successful in tearing it down towards the front of the building, and then that's when cops came out uh, on top of the roof to fire tear gas and rubber bullets at people to get them to stop, and then that's just, I mean, just crescendoed from there. Uh, people were rioters were going around the entire building and, and taking the fencing down in other places. So it became very, very quickly apparent that the defensive position within the officers was became very untenable. Uh, they didn't have the manpower. They didn't have uh, presumably the, 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 the ammunition for crowd control needed to, to get people to stop because, I mean, people were very, very angry. And there had been multiple times throughout that part of the night where I had heard people trying to, 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 they were vocally stating that they wanted to set the building on fire with the officers still inside. Mm. And that, and that's what I, and that's when I realized that this was going to be, you know, very, very bad in some way. Now, obviously that didn't happen because the order for them to evacuate came before that. But even, even then, as they were evacuating, they were, they were being attacked the whole way out and someone actually uh they they couldn't open the fence because someone had jammed the fence and so they had to uh take one of the police cars and drive through it to get it to open so that they can get all the vehicles out along with the people i mean so this was this was very violent i mean they they were people were intending to kill all the officers inside uh through arson if, if they were given the chance and uh the mayor jacob Fry or Jacob Frey, he he said that he gave the order, but the problem with them evacuating and and just letting now there's zero police officers in the area was that sure they set the building on fire, but they weren't satisfied with that. They didn't go home. They, you know they achieved their main objective, but they wanted to continue. And then that's when we saw other buildings that that weren't police officers, <laughs> police buildings being set on fire. And there was the fifth precinct, which is a straight shot. Uh, west down the street, about three miles, and they wanted to continue bur- to, to burn that police station down. I mean, so mm-hmm. it, it just it, it just dominoed from that. And so when people say that, oh well, it was a good because when I posted that video of, of the building being on fire and officers retreating, there were people were celebrating, saying, "Yes, this is this is justice for George Floyd. This is what we wanted to have happened." But what they didn't realize is that the rioters they weren't satisfied with that. They wanted to continue their their rampage. 
Well, was your impression, I mean, you may, you may not know the answer to this, it would be understandable if you didn't, but was it your impression that the people who were doing this, the people who were really at the core of the violence, were neighborhood people? Or do you think that they had come from elsewhere? It seemed like a mix, um, for sure. There, there were, like I said, there were people during the day who were expressing concern about people coming in from outside of the city or maybe from the, the surrounding neighborhoods and, and causing disruptions because they said that if they become violent, then those people, they don't have to suffer the consequences because the people then get to go home and leave while the of members course. of the community yeah. have to suffer the consequences of, of their actions. But I mean, this was a very diverse crowd. <laughs> it was uh, people uh, from all uh, all ages and, and, and all you know, races and, and what have you. So um, it, it's hard to definitively say, you know, 60% were from the neighborhood or, or, or not. But I think it just seemed like there were a lot of uh, Minnesotans there for sure. Okay. So how, how many days were you there? I was there from Thursday to Monday. So about okay. three, three or four days. And did it get worse, better during that time? So the next day, uh, Friday, uh, they the, the police did set up a perimeter around uh, to after they finally cleared everybody out and everyone went home. This is a more accurate yeah. description. But yeah. no, it, it continued, and, and and so they they once again tried to the rioters push the the the, the law enforcement line all the way back away from the third precinct down towards the fifth precinct. And this was the first night where they were going to try to enforce a curfew. Uh, and it, it was absolutely unsuccessful. <laughs> I mean, there was, uh-huh. there was no attempt to really uh, to, to enforce that, no really attempt to stop people from targeting other things. They were able to prevent the fifth precinct from being overrun because the National Guard was out in full force, the state police were out in full force, which was not the case on Thursday. So it wasn't until so Friday, so Thursday and Friday was really the crescendo for for Minneapolis. And and I mean, even St. Paul, who had largely been spared the chaos uh, in the days prior, Thursday was when things started to get out of control uh, over there. So, I mean, really, this there, this was that's what's kind of unique about about Minneapolis. Was that it wasn't just Minneapolis. It was also nearby St. Paul, right, right across the way from that. So, I mean, it was it was it was pretty just shocking to see. That again, two major American cities were just thrown into complete chaos, and there were a lot of mistakes clearly uh, on the states and the cities and to to try to quell this this uh, this craziness. We're talking to uh, Julio Rosas, the author of the new book, uh, Fiery but Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America. At what point did you start to realize that the coverage of this on TV was markedly different than what you were seeing? Oh, well, there was Ali Velshi, uh, MSNBC, who was on the ground <laughs> yeah. in Minneapolis. And I remember seeing him. I remember seeing him that Thursday. Uh, now, of course, obviously, I wasn't you know, listening to him because I was out covering the, the, the hecticness that was out there. But it wasn't until I then got back to my hotel room and I saw the, the clips on Twitter of him saying that this is not, generally speaking, an unruly protest. But fires have been started as, a, as an entire building is burning behind him. And I'm just thinking, what in the world? <laughs> I'm like, how can you say that? It's one thing if it's an anchor in the studio saying that, but how can you say that when you're literally there? Uh, but even before that, Craig Melvin, again, at MSNBC, or he was at MSNBC at the time, he tweeted out basically what their style guide was. And, and they were saying that we're not going to call these riots. We're going to mostly basically say we're going to mostly focus on the protests. With, and there's some acts of violence that that's happening, and and then 
whole the whole buildings are going up in flames. I mean, it, it was it, it was it was absurd. I mean, so literally, I mean, right out the gate, and of course that's not surprising, right? Because who was you know you know the BLM movement, and you can't you can't criticize them, or else you're labeled immediately a racist. Uh, and and so it, right away, I knew that that was going to be a part of the story. What I didn't really realize was just how consistent they were going to be, just because I didn't anticipate riots to continue. I initially thought, okay, I'll, I'll go to Minneapolis, cover a few days craziness, and then I'll go back and then things will go back to normal in the sense that we'll be back to focusing on COVID and the presidential election. But clearly that that wasn't the case. They, they kept they kept happening. And, and I didn't set out to write a book at the very beginning. I, I didn't think I would even write a book, period. But as they continued, and then as the media continued to cover for them and, and provide play defense for them, I, that's why I wanted to put out a, a physical medium of of oral history, essentially, because the people who have bigger platforms, because the people who are supposed to be reportedly accurate on these things weren't. And so this is to say, no, here's what here's what actually happened. Do you ever get a chance to talk to any of the other reporters? Uh, a few. I mean, uh, there were not necessarily the mainstream reporters, uh, with the exception being Fox News, Mike Tobin, who uh, I've, got, I've gotten to know. He's, he's a great guy. He's a great reporter. But uh, I mean, the, the other reporters that I became friends with were were not from mainstream media. It was people from The Daily Caller, from The Blaze, uh, independent, just straight up independent people and live streamers, because we were always out there. We were always we were traveling the country. Uh, and we, you know, we would you know, try to stay together, uh, kind of a safety and numbers um, aspect, because these were violent situations that we we're throwing ourselves in, and we didn't have the we didn't have the backing of these large, you know, super large uh, mainstream media outlets and, and all the resources that, that that those entities can provide. So uh, we all just did this just because. Um, there, there, we we enjoyed the work for what it was, and also just because people were really relying on us to give them the facts in real time, because they weren't getting it from from the usual uh, suspects. So, is your impression that uh, how can I put this? <laughs> is your impression that these guy, these mainstream media guys were acting? Uh, cooperatively with one another? Because I, I I was a reporter. I covered big stories and the competition was so intense that uh, people were actually hitting each other to get the story before the other people. But these guys seemed to be acting in unison. It was kind of different. What was your impression of why why this big lie was ma- managing to take over so much of the, of the coverage? I don't think necessarily it's coordination between the, I think it's just that the, the, the market and, and, and the, the environment is just so saturated with admittedly just left-wing individuals. Um, and so they, they see no problem. And we see this all the time with, for example, whenever there's an effort to highlight businesses be and business owners being suffering the consequences of these rights, because a lot of there's a, there's a reflex saying, well, it's just property there's insurance and, and all that. And it's because they truly believe that uh, there's nothing wrong with them. Uh, there's nothing wrong with rioters targeting a building because, well, it's just a building. It's not a human life. And so I think it's just, it's just that there's a whole bunch of ideologues within the mainstream media and they, they don't just see an issue with that uh, just because of that's what their personal beliefs are. And then therefore it bleeds into <laughs> their coverage. And, it, and it's really absurd. I mean, one of the examples I provide in the book is from the New York Times. And it was talking about how Republicans were whataboutting 
January 6th with the, with the 2020 riots. But in that same article, they were downplaying the riots because the, 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 the sentence was they were, you know, Republicans are highlighting isolated instances of property damage during the, the BLM protest. And we're talking $2 billion worth of damage over many months. A lot of people were killed during this. A lot more people have been killed in the crime wave that was due in part because of the riots. I mean, and so to, to reduce all of that to just that, you know, isolated into the property damage is just obscene. It's, it's ahistorical and it's irresponsible. But because that's what they believe, they're more than happy to, to, to have that be the narrative. Minneapolis looked like, uh, I mean, Minneapolis used to be a beautiful city. It looked like it was in ruins from the pictures that I saw. It it absolutely was. South Minneapolis, which, you know, unfortunately was also the minority uh, heavy area of the city, was was very, very damaged. Um, And and one of the stories that uh, is uh, in the book about, you know, the people had to take up arms to defend themselves and their property and their businesses. Uh, and there were they weren't white people. There were you know in, in this one man that I interviewed, he was a he was a Latino uh, and a whole bunch of other Latinos. There were rooftop Latinos instead of rooftop Koreans from the yeah. Los Angeles riots in '92. But they had to do that because there was there was no help. No no one was coming to to save them. And and if they didn't do that, then they their their own businesses probably wouldn't have survived. So um, they and, and that's the other kind of uh, interesting. Parts where when people are justifying these riots uh, because, uh, well, the ends justify the means. It's like, well, you're also hurting the very community that you're saying that you're advocating for. And it's not just, you know, we see this all the time, like with the border crisis, which I've covered extensively. You know, people say, well, the reason why Biden's approach is better is because it's more safe and humane. It's, well, no, you're actually harming the migrants more because you're encouraging them to put their themselves in the hands of dangerous drug cartels and dangerous parts of Mexico. So, I mean, we see this all the time within the left wing where they, they say, well, we're the champion of X, but in order to achieve that, we're going to hurt that same, that same demographic. It just, but, but it's, to me, it's even worse when we have entire communities on fire or, or, or destroyed. And that was certainly the case in Minneapolis because it was predominantly in the minority neighborhoods. I got to stop you there. Really interesting. Thank you, Julio Rosas. The book is Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America. Really interesting talking to you, Julio. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Gear up for the great outdoors with Forlo, the brand that's revolutionizing outdoor apparel. Forlo's non-compromised, 100% American-made outdoor apparel protects your body from the elements so that your mind stays focused on the hunt, on the water, or on the trail. Your adventure starts with a solid foundation, which is why Forlo's base layer is designed to provide the comfort and insulation you need to keep going when the temperatures drop. Their uniquely breathable down layer ensures that you stay warm without overheating. And since proper protection goes beyond insulation, the final layer, a waterproof shield, completes the system. From UPF sunblocking material that shields you from harmful rays to polygene technology that masks your scent, Forlow's innovative designs and cutting-edge material ensures that you can focus on the adventure, not the elements. Their commitment to innovation and American craftsmanship will carry you beyond the known and into the unknown where the journey truly begins. Get the most out of your time in the outdoors and go to forlow.com and use code DAILYWIRE for 20% off your purchase. That's forlow.com, code DAILYWIRE.
All right, uh, we began this show by saying a passat pas long to Jen Pasaki, and now we have to say goodbye to you because we're going to plunge you <laughs> into the cliffless weekend. Uh, it's just an endless pit of darkness, uh, as, so you'll be falling and falling and then falling and falling some more. Uh, it, the chances of climbing out uh, to be back here next week are uh, almost uh, very unlikely. But, but before you plunge into that pit, we want to solve all your problems with the mailbag. We will work together and continue to work together and to work together that we will convene to work together on. Yeah! <laughs> I wanted to open the show with that. I forgot about it. All right. Yes, we're, all right, so we're going to work together to solve your problems with the Work Together mailbag. Uh, this one is from Suzanne. Uh, Dearest Andrew, I met my husband a few years ago and we had children very quickly into our relationship. Neither of us was raised in a religious household and religion has not been a part of either of our lives. Since having children, I feel a massive shift in how I feel about so many things, especially religion. I want to start bringing our children to church and trying to have a relationship with Jesus myself. I don't know how to broach the subject with my husband because he's not only not a man of faith, but finds religion to be absurd. I don't want to cause a rift between us, and I don't want him to feel as though I'm somewhat someone different than he married. But the reality is that, that I am different. How do I bring faith in God into my and my children's life, knowing that my husband will never join us? Uh, okay, well, that's a, a, an interesting question and a difficult one. Uh, let's start, but first we have to start with you. Um, you know, one of the tricks, the important parts of a long marriage, having been in a long marriage, is you have to grow uh, in tandem. That doesn't mean that you have to go the same way. It just means that you have to allow the other person room to grow. I mean, if you get married uh, when you're young, especially, you're not going to be the same person that you were, uh, you know, 30 years later. And so you have to allow for the for people to grow and become new people and become uh, more mature and deeper in their lives. So you going to your husband and saying, um, God and Jesus have become important to me. And I know that's not where I started, but you know, this is something I had to do in my marriage. I mean, and uh, happily, my wife and I are so used to, <laughs> to each other <laughs> changing and growing that, that it wasn't a, a problem, but it, it is a difference. It's a change. So that's, that's the first thing. I, obviously, um, you know, your soul is your own and a, a good husband uh, and a good wife understand that and want your soul to go in the way that, that, to grow into itself, which is what life is really about, is the whole point of being alive, is to grow into the person God made you to be. And so it's one thing to go to your husband and say, uh, you know, this is important to me and I've changed and this is what's happening and I need you to hear about it. Um, and and he hopefully uh, will understand that this is something that is is new in your relationship and he's going to have to learn to live with it and um and get used to it. Now, the children are a different matter. Um, obviously, he has, uh, you know, a, a, a say in how his children are raised, and he may actually not want them uh, in a church. What I hope would happen, you know, I know plenty of people who are married where one person is a believer and the other person isn't, and they usually uh, compromise on the kids in some way. Uh, you know, the kids go to church sometimes, and sometimes they don't. They're aware that the wife or husband doesn't believe, and the wife or husband does believe. They're aware of all those things, and they can talk about it, which I think is a really healthy thing, uh, so that they can make their own uh, choices. In one way, I'm sorry that I converted so late and so didn't take my kids to church all that time, but in another way, it's been a good thing that they be, were able to find their way on their own. Uh, so basically, look, you can't have a marriage and you can't grow in tandem if you're not talking to one another. So you got to be able to talk to one another. You got to be able to talk to one another in a civilized and loving way. That is part of marriage is probably uh, the most important tool you have is conversation. And, uh, and so you've got to bring that part 
to your husband and then from that say, well, you know, now we need to discuss the children and where they fit in with this and, and both have to, uh, you know, you have to find a, a thing that's fair and that's and that's right for the children. This is not like, oh, I'm, you know, I believe and I'm taking the kids to church. That would be absurd. Uh, but I also hope that he has the flexibility to say, okay, well, let's, you know, make sure they know that both of us have different points of view and you can take them to church sometimes and I can take them to the ball game on Sunday sometimes and, and that's how we're going to work it out. And look, again, if you can't grow in tandem together, it's, it's hard to stay married because you are going to change. Uh, from Grace, to your honor, the intellectual giant Andrew Clavin, you are my favorite at Daily Wire. I'm always impressed by your intellect and lines and depth of reasoning in your arguments. I believe the grace and love you show for your son as a Christian on your show models the love of the Father. I just received the truth and beauty, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, in my sparse spare moments. My husband passed away from a mountain bike accident. I'm so sorry. Uh, right before the COVID lockdowns, I was a homemaker, a major transition in my life. I work on my small farm as I study old great books and dead languages in order to think clearly. As I was listening to your latest show, I became curious to know where you received your education. Uh, who or what do you credit as the most important influencer in the training of your thinking? Thank you for taking the time to read my note. I hope to hear your answer. Uh, Grace, follower of Jesus first and Clavin eighth or maybe ninth. As long, that's fine as long as Jesus is first through seventh, okay? <laughs> um, you know, I, I write about this a lot in my memoir, The Great Good Thing, about how I was educated because it is a kind of offbeat thing that I was a lousy student. I, I conned my way uh, through most of school and only at the very end did I start to think like, gee, I'm I actually am interested in this. But all along, I bought the books. I was always buying the books. And I basically, after I got out of school, I spent the next 15 years reading all the books. And so I read the books without much guidance, uh, except from one book to another and reading one book and then reading another book that that book recommended. And that was how I educated myself. And the only mentor I've ever had is the psychiatrist who saved my life, uh, you know, brought me, I, I believe, miraculously out of madness. And he became a mentor. Uh, but we, you know, when I came in and told him I was a Christian, his jaw dropped. Uh, so I haven't had mentors in my life, but I have listened. Uh, I've always kept an open mind about what people were saying to me, and I've listened to people and learned from everything uh, and just read and read and read. And I think reading books and reading great books uh, and reading books that disagree with the great books that you love, uh, I think is really important. Um, from Anonymous to the Changer of Lives, I don't even know where to begin I uh, hope I can be concise. My husband and I live in an extremely blue state with our nine-month-old child. It's my greatest desire to leave this awful place and move our family to somewhere more aligned with our values. Uh, I will admit I have changed since COVID and being home and then having a baby. Before I got married, I don't think I would have said I want to be a stay-at-home mom-wife, but now I would want that at least part-time. Living in this ridiculously expensive area uh, we live in, it isn't really feasible. Uh, my husband does not want to move. He's adamant. Uh, our community is very special. I have over 50 people that I'm 100% comfortable leaving my child with. Uh, that is how embedded we are. We also have a connection to a truly wonderful Christian school uh, that we'll be able to afford. I would rather move somewhere despite all this, but my husband would not. Uh, I know I'm called to submit, and I know that he's leading our family in the way he thinks best, but I just think he's wrong. I guess I'm asking for advice on how to get let my desires go because I know I can't or shouldn't just pray for my husband to change his mind. Uh, he is a man of God whom I love very much, and he's doing what what he believes is called to. You know, uh, can I make a, I'm going to take a, a guess here, but I, I think it's a good guess. And I think maybe you should think about this. Um, I, I think the, the issue here is not where you live. It's that you want to be an at-home mom, uh, at least part of the time. I suspect you want to be an at-home mom all the time. And it's expensive where you are and you can't find a way to do that. Um, and and so you have this desperation to get out of a place. And I, I understand that the place may be awful. Say, you know, I was in California, so I know what an awful blue state looks like. Um, 
but, but I think the issue here, you do have this wonderful community. You do have a wonderful Christian school. Your husband is right to value that because it doesn't come out of nowhere. And you can live in a place where the values are more uh, to your liking in the state, but you can't find that place. So your husband is, is very, very wise to value that. Maybe what he needs to know is that you want to stay home and you would like to know if there's a way that that can be done and whether he will discuss with you whether there's a way that you can stay home and be a homemaker and a mom to your kid. I mean, I think that that's the serious issue here and that's the issue you should be focusing on and I think maybe you're deflecting that onto this issue about the state. Uh, it, It would be interesting to bring it to him in that way because he might be, you know, he might hear that and hear that this is the desire of your heart. Uh, you know, when you love people, you kind of want them to have the desire of their heart unless you think the desire of their heart is destructive to them. Uh, and so if he hears that, uh, he might in fact say to you, okay, well, that's that's a different story. We can manage that. Uh, you know, maybe there's a way you can make money at home and maybe there's a way that I can make money and we can cut costs uh, and, and do a few things uh, cheaper that would allow you to have that. Because uh, I, I, I seriously, just reading your letter, I seriously suspect that that's the issue, uh, that you have a child you want to be with that child, and it's too expensive there for you to do that. Uh, but you never know. You can, you can do, make a lot of changes uh, that make that possible. So let me, that's my suggestion. That's a, it's a guess, but it's my, my suggestion what would help. And with that, I plum, plunge you, plummet you. You go plummeting as I plunge you, and I plunge you as you go plummeting into the uh, eternal. It is, a, I mean, let's face it. It's, you know, it's only a week long, and yet it lasts forever. It's... <laughs> <laughs> the claimless week, the despair. It just like falls like a shroud, doesn't it? It's just like a, just a, having a great time. We're laughing. We're kidding around. We're laughing our way through the fall of the republic. And suddenly this darkness, like a, a shroud of uh, hellish night, uh, falls upon us. And we are lost forever. Uh, however, after being lost forever, we'll be back next Friday with The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Lisa Bacon. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Elon Musk gets Me Too'd within 24 hours of becoming a Republican. The New York Times embraces great replacement theory. You know, that thing we were told was a crazy conspiracy. Now they're promoting it. And new documents show Hunter Biden made millions of dollars in China, despite Joe Biden's emphatic denials. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. Hold up. 